All right, today we have Dr. Walter Kimbrough, who is the seventh president of Dillard University. Before that, Dr. Kimbrough was the president of Philander Smith College from 2004 to 2012. I'm gonna go down your resume real quick to give our audience a little context of how accomplished you are. In 1994, Dr. Kimbrough was named the new professional of the year by the Association of Fraternity Advisors. In 2001, Dr. Kimbrough was named a Nissan ETS HBCU Fellow. In 2009, was named by the Diverse Issues in Higher Education as one of the 25 to watch. In 2010, by Ebony Magazine, was included on their Power 100 list of the doers and influencers in the African-American community. In February 2013, was named to the NBC News and thegrill.com's 100 African-Americans making history today and so much more. Dr. Kimbrough, being so accomplished, what's your why and what keeps the fire burning inside of you? Well, I, you know, I think for me, I, um, I always think back to a quote from Elaine Harris, who was an author, um, native of Arkansas. He really made news because he was really the first author to talk about um, black gay men. So people were just surprised that he had this guy who wrote this book to talk about this. And he spoke at Old Dominion when I worked there. And he says, you know, the, the key to life is to find something that you love doing that you would do for free and then find a way to get paid to do it. And that's that's it for me. I mean, this is I, I love what I do, uh, engaging, you know, with students and families and you know, helping people figure out what's the next step and how to achieve their success professionally. All those things to me are exciting. So that's that's really the why for me. But, you know, part of it is just finding something that, you know, I love doing um, that you would do for free. Who was Walter before you became Dr. Kimbrough as a child? Were you in the sports? Were you on the speech and debate team in high school? Were you in the video games? Talk to me about your upbringing a little bit. Yeah, so I I grew up actually wanting to be a veterinarian. That's that's all I thought about being a veterinarian. We had all kind of animals in the house. I went to a magnet high school for math and science. So it was all of that, you know, and I was involved in, in leadership positions. I was student body president of my high school, number two in my class. So, I mean, I did the leadership stuff. Um, very involved in church. My father's a minister. So I did all the church things, sang in choir, play in choir. You know, so it's just pretty well-rounded, I believe, you know, those kinds of things. Being the son of a minister, what role did faith play in you growing up and your success? Oh, I mean, I think it's it's a core part of who I am. I mean, you, you get to experience um, a lot of different things, particularly, I guess, you know, with me, I just go hang out with my dad all kinds of places. So, I mean, I went to, you know, I'm the little kid going just to hang out to go to funerals. And I think I stopped doing that because we went to one that was like three hours long. I was like, I, I ain't doing this no more. It's too much. Uh, but I think that's part of it. Uh, my mom taught religion and philosophy at Clark Atlanta. So, I mean, that's just a real big part of, you know, how you grow up and how you process challenges in your life. I think that was really good because particularly in these roles at HBCUs, there's just lots of challenges. So how do you put in perspective when you have those challenges? And I think for me, you know, I don't freak out when it's like, all right, you got COVID coming. This is the spring of 2020 and you got to shift. I mean, it's what you do. You just move on. I think that's part of it. Or, you know, you have like we just had Hurricane Ida. I don't just freak out when those kinds of things happen. And, you know, you're going to be off your campus for a couple of weeks because of the broader faith. 
And in particularly a place like Dillard, our motto says, you know, strong from faith. So, I mean, that made that makes a lot of sense. It's something that you have to live every day. Uh, so I think I've had good practice about that. And then when you sort of wander a little bit, like, am I sure about this? Those, you know, that family upbringing sort of kicks in. I think that's important. Now, I've, I speak to a lot of people at, at high level with advanced degrees, and I have two camps of people. I have the people that say, make sure you call me doctor, and they have doctor in your name. I noticed here you only have Walter Kimbrough in there, and that speaks to humility. And then sometimes when I look at social media, the people that are trying to be almost make themselves look bigger than they are, and the people that already are, they almost play, they almost play it down a little bit. Where does your, your humility stem from? Yeah, that's, I'm, you know, I don't get caught up in all that stuff. You know, I just tell people like, president is what I do. It's not who I am. Uh, I'm really more of a, you know, I, I consider myself to be a student affairs practitioner. That's why I came up through and working in Greek life and residence life and student activities. That's part of it. Uh, I always joke with people when I got my PhD, I was 29. Uh, and my closest fraternity brothers are just like, Look, we ain't never calling you doctor. So if they won't do it, I'm not expecting anybody else to. They were just like, you can forget that. That's never happening. Um, so I think that's part of having people. I think having people around you that keep you grounded is good. And some people don't have that. Uh, so it's always I'm like, I'm not I'm just not caught up in all that because, I mean, what is that? Doesn't do anything, you know. Um, but yeah, you're right. It's, it sometimes it does tell you a little bit about a person who is insistent on those honorifics. Um, and I just for this kind of work, I, I think that sometimes can even be a barrier um, to reaching out to people if it's always doctor this and doctor that. Makes sense. Now, your Instagram handle is hip hop prayers. And I have an interesting story. And it was with me and my father. So every day when he took me to school in high school, ninth grade, 10th grade, I'll be playing Tupac. And my dad was, you know, extremely successful businessman. And I'm pretty sure he didn't want to listen to Tupac on the way to school, but he listened to it. And he told me that I told him to keep it in for the day and listen to it. It's going to help your day. And he said he would go meet some executives and take them riding around. and He'll still be playing Tupac. And it was kind of something that um, that was kind of shocking to other people. But he said Tupac ended up making him a better person and be able to communicate better. How did the moniker come about first, the hip hop prayers? And how has relating to hip hop helped you in your in your career? Is it being able to um, relate to students? Is it being able to relate to your children? Is it providing balance? Speak to that a bit. Right. Well, you know, so when I became president of Philander Smith, I was 37. Um, so I'm, I was definitely in a different generation when the average age of college presidents in was about 58. So when I'm they're doing a the presentation, you know, I'm standing in front of the podium and I'm really just young looking. I'm 37. And I'm like, look, I'm not a baby boomer. I'm not what a traditional president looks like. I'm from Generation X. I'm from the hip hop generation. So I have to be, you know, authentic to who I am as a president. I'm not going to operate like other people. I just laid it out there from the beginning. And one of the local papers the next week talked about, you know, Lander introduces a hip hop president. So I didn't come up with it. But when people on campus, particularly the marketing people heard it, they were like, oh, this is horrible. Hip hop. You got the misogyny. You got. And I was like, no, absolutely. No, you know, really, this is sort of brilliant. I'm just going to lean into it. So I leaned into it and had connections. I mean, and so as someone who 
you know, now that is 54, you know, when hip hop is really starting to evolve, those are in my formative years. And so particularly as a college student, you know, I'm, I'm influenced by, I mean, there was a range of people, you know, in the, the mid to late eighties influencing hip hop. You know, I'm definitely influenced by public enemy. I mean, so, you know, public enemy in terms of my mindset about addressing a lot of the ills in society, it traces back to public enemy. It's pretty clear for me and how I think about things in process. Uh, I still like the two live crew too. I mean, so there's a dichotomy in terms of, you know, so it's always been that, um, but I've, I've leaned into that and then, you know, form these natural relationships with people who are from the hip hop generation. So, I mean, MC light was on our board for a while. I mean, that happened because she called me, she was like, Hey, I got an idea. I want to do something with Dillard. And then I was like, well, you need to be on the board too. So, I mean, those kind of relationships have, developed organically, but a lot of those key influence in hip hop, we're in the same generation together. So it made sense to to, to do that. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's part of it. I think people are, you know, surprised. I mean, it still is, it's non-traditional for a president. You know, you get people to, you know, push back if you say, oh, you know, we had chance to rapper as a commencement speaker. And people are just like, well, why would you do that? But he was very thoughtful and really, you know, worked on his speech. So I was like, there are different voices that we need to hear. And you don't have to hear the same old people all the time. There's some people who are artists that you have more to say than what you just hear on those records. So those are the kinds of things I look at. I think it's been, um, you know, a good relationship for me to have connected with that community. Now, you say you were 37 when you became a president for the first time. And Obama was a little younger and didn't come up through the regular cha- the regular channels when he became president. Right. And he had some pushback from some of the older members who thought it was their turn and it wasn't Obama's turn. What type of feedback and what type of um, support or non-support did you get from people who may have been 55, 58, thought they were it was their time and they hadn't become presidents yet with you being such a young president? Yeah, no, I mean, not a lot. I, you know, you know, I, I tell people they're going to be really good people who will never become a president. And there are people who are horrible who will be president multiple times that you have no control. I think Philander was a good fit for me at that time because I was the 12th president, but I was actually the fourth youngest. So they had a president in Lafayette Harris. Harris became president at 29. And there were people on the search committee and on the board who were students at Philander when Harris was president. So they look at me, they were like, this is this is my experience. I had a young president. So it was nothing to them. It was like we had President Harris. So a lot of people just say, oh, you're the youngest president in the history of Philander. I was like, no, actually, I'm the fourth youngest. So there was a, a culture there of young presidents. And so that didn't really shock people. It was, you know, for that period of time when I was selected, I was the youngest and we started to see more, but see, even that has changed now that there have been a number of presidents since that time who have been selected early forties or younger. Um, so we've started to see some younger people, which I think is a good thing uh, as a part of that. But, you know, it's, it doesn't take away from people who aren't selected as a president or thinking that it's their time. It's, it could be your time, but if you don't have, you don't, you're at the right place with the right people is not the right time. And you just really don't have any control over that. So I just tell people that, you don't have any control. You put yourself out there and if it fits and all the things line up, then you can be present there. Something I think about often is sometimes putting older people in first time jobs and putting younger people in leadership positions, because sometimes I think 
that 72 year old that has retired and used to work in marketing in New York back in the back in the 60s and 70s can really add something to the person that came up in social media and I'll have them sit together in our organization. How do you look at that in your organizations? Do you try to put younger with older experience with rigor? Is that something you think about? I mean, it just depends on, you know, um, the opportunities that are there. Um, you know, I think back once again at Philander, my second vice president for academic affairs was a graduate of Philander. He was probably at the time late 60s, early 70s, but he had all the wealth. So, I mean, you got the person in the room who could give you all the history who was, you know, and we had a range of people. Um, I think my team here skews younger. We're all, you know, early 50s for the most part, uh, early to mid 50s. Um, but then we're able to, to pull in other people with different experiences, different mentors who are older to provide some of that context for us. Um, but, you know, mid 50s now we're becoming the old people. So, um, you know, it's getting other older people. It's like we're the old people. We need some people actually younger than us to really push. I mean, I, you know, I mean, you know, I've been a president 17 years. So that's a that's a long time. So, I, you know, from that position, I've seen some of everything now, particularly the last couple of years. It, so those those are the kinds of things I think about. So you have a mix of people. But I think for me, you know, I want to start skewing younger, you know. Makes sense. Now you went to the University of Georgia for your undergrad. You went to the University of Miami to get your master's and you got your Ph.D. at Georgia, Georgia State, which were all PWIs. Right. Then you worked in student affairs at Emory, Georgia State, Old Dominion, and at 32 became the VP of student affairs at Albany State. Four years later, you became the president of Philander Smith College and then Dillard University. What is the difference in experiences you see from student from black students at PWIs and HBCUs? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think particularly in recent years, people are just seeing some of the challenges that black students at PWIs are having based on the environment of the campus. You know, and that's that's been the, you know, the people talk about the microaggressions and all those kinds of things. After the, the big protest at the University of Missouri in 2015, people started, you know, having these demands and those kinds of things. So I think the challenge is there more in terms of environment versus black students at HBCUs, I think the challenges are more resources. The students don't have the resources and the institutions don't have the resources and that creates conflict. So it's not so much that you have this, you know, microaggression, racist environment. It's like you just got everybody that has few resources. And so you can't just go out and just buy new things or fix things up immediately like you could at a major predominantly white institution because you don't have the resources to do it. So those are it's different types of challenges there. But everybody has their challenges. Like I said, I, I worked at Emory. Emory had some Emory had some shady stuff going on when I was there. I mean, it, they were just good about keeping it quiet. And of course, the media wasn't excited about shadiness at Emory. But if something bad happened at Albany State, they'd be knocking on the door like, what are y'all doing? So that's that's part of it. So I just tell people I haven't worked in both. And my career really is about split almost half and half a little bit now more at HBCUs. But hey, it's everybody's got issues. They're just different, but they, everybody has them. So that's the way I look at it. Yeah, we've seen that recently with the issues that Howard had at in the with the dorms, and everybody reached out to us, and you know we got a lot of hate mail for not even covering it. And but a week or two later, Harvard had the same issues, and 
nobody talked about it. So Oh, no, I, I share with our, you know, I, we did like some town hall meetings with our alums and I was just talking about resources and I talked about the Howard thing and I was showing them some pictures of like, there's a picture of a bathroom, a, a, a shower with the ceiling falling down and some mold some places. And I was just saying like, you know, look, there are just challenges on campuses. And then I said, oh, wait a minute. Y'all think that's Dillard? No, that's Harvard. And I showed them the articles. And there was an article from two years ago where somebody at Harvard said, we have mold in basically every building on campus. And I'm like, y'all, if Harvard with a $53 billion endowment has mold, stop freaking out about some broke HBCU that's got some mold. It's, I mean, everybody's got the issue. Just recently, Virginia Commonwealth University just shut down an entire freshman dorm for the rest of the academic year because of mold. And that's not blowing up all over the place. So it's like there's a double standard. So it's like. We look at the HBCU and it's like, oh, it's horrible, blah, blah, blah. And you got mold issues everywhere. So it's not, you know, and part of it is climate change and all of that. It's a complex issue. So everybody's dealing with it the best that they can. I think people have to have patience and try to figure out how do we mitigate that on all of our campuses? Because everybody got some mold somewhere. I mean, it's just. But like I said, when I'm telling them, like, and I'm showing these pictures and I'm setting them up to think that this is pictures from our campus. I'm just like, oh, wait a minute. That's not us. That's Harvard. It, it helps people sort of see like, oh, OK, I, I got it now. I got it. That was, that was a good thing to do. Who planted a seed in you or what experience led you into wanting a career in high, higher education? So I, I think just being active at the University of Georgia, like I said, I wanted to be a veterinarian. Um, usually you do four years undergrad, four years of vet school. I got in vet school after three. I got in at, at Georgia and at Tuskegee. And I always tell people, had I gone to Tuskegee, I probably would be a veterinarian. I don't know if that's what I was supposed to do, but I think it would have been a better environment. And like, so I got in vet school and I just I hated it. It was horrible. It wasn't what I thought it was going to be. But I was very active. Um, I'm an alpha. And so I served on our our board um, for the Southern region. So I was a college student representative for seven Southeastern states. And so when you go to those meetings, you're interacting with people and interacting with a number of college presidents. And so I started to get in my mind and say, man, you know, if I become a veterinarian, I might want to work on a campus. I'm very involved. So I started talking to Walter Washington, who was president of Alcorn State. I was like, I think I might want to be a president one day. So he's the one that sort of says, all right, but this is what you do. So he's the one that put me on the path. But I think just being active on my campus and realizing that hey, you can have a career working on the campus, working with students. I was like, I think I like that, you know. And so that that and his, his you know, sort of steering me. And then once I got into that master's program at Miami and studied college student development theory and those kind of things, I was like, oh, yeah, this is me. It was like it, the light bulb went off and I was like, this is what I'm supposed to do. So that was, you know, that was part of just that experience being involved on campus uh, and then having a chance to talk to a president that sort of put me on the right track. And that's how it happened. How important is mentorship in the development in, in your career? How important has it been for you and how important is it for you to have mentees? Yeah, I, I mean, it's important. I think the challenge for a lot of people and I always tell people, you know, once or twice a month, I get an email from somebody saying, hey, will you be my mentor? And it's like there are different ways that you can have mentors. You know, I consider Benjamin Mays a mentor of mine and he's been dead. I don't know how many years I, I did meet him. I, I was in high school because I went to Benjamin Mays High School in Atlanta and they opened up that school as a new school. He was president of the school board in Atlanta. So I met him. I think I was maybe 11th or 12th grade. Um but, you know, by the time I get into higher ed, 
he's not around. But to me, he's a mentor because I'm studying his his readings and his work. So I'm learning a lot from him. And he's not here. So I still consider him to be a mentor for me. Um, I think some of the best mentors are people that you share space with. And so the president of Albany State, when she hired me when I was at Old Dominion, she said, look, you come here, work for me. You'll be a president in five years. In less than five years, I was a president. So I think those are ways to have them. I have some that I've just met and interacted with over time, like Charlie Nelms, and we interact. And so he becomes a mentor. So so I now have some people like that, that are, you know, my mentees that, you know, we've worked at the same place or some former students or people I just see over and over again. So mentorship is for a lot. It's a relationship. And it's not just, I think, sometimes feel like, oh, I see somebody. Let me just email them and say, be my mentor, because it is a relationship. And that's not I think they sort of develop organically. Um, and really, I'm trying to think Valicia um, Butterfield Jones, who I think she's over diversity at Google now. She spoke on our campus. She graduated from Clark Atlanta. She said people need to stop looking for mentors and you need to find some sponsors. And the way she defined a sponsor is this is somebody who's putting you on and you don't even know they're doing it. So they are thinking about you. So they're in some space and some place and somebody's looking for someone and they're the ones saying this is who you need to get. And I was like, oh, that's powerful. So my mentors are good. I think sponsors are better. The way that she defined it, I was like, yeah, I, I want to be able to sponsor people and I want people to sponsor me. So I, I think that you, you need both of them. For someone that wants to become the president of a university, what advice would you give them on a career path? I was listening to the president, not the president, but the coach of the Pittsburgh Steelers maybe a couple weeks ago, Mike Tomlin, and he spoke about how he was initially a offensive, I think he was an offensive wide receivers coach. Right. This yeah. was when he was 22 or 23. Mm-hmm. And then he switched over to become a defensive back coach because he saw that Tony Dungy and other black men who became head coaches were came from the defensive side of the ball. So it was just a little neck like that. Is there anything that you see that you would advise someone that wants to become a president of a university? Um, no, it, I mean, it goes back to for me, you know, I think you just got to find a thing that you love doing. I always tell people find it and do the best that you can instead of just trying to think, let me start making these strategic moves. It's like whatever job you have, you need to. You need to try to kill that job. You need to be doing it in such a way that it stands out. So I think that's part of it. And if it's something that you love, you don't get disappointed because once again, you have no control whether or not you're going to become a president. You just you have none. So those are the challenges, I think. So I I think those kind of things um, are still important for me. Just find what you love doing and do the best that you can. uh, And then you sort of get yourself in a position that you can be selected um, as a president. Do you look for people that have your same skill set when you're looking for a mentee or to sponsor someone or someone that you know that can fulfill it? Or are you looking for someone that has different traits in them? Or is it, you know, a certain set of traits that you look that you look for? Because I'm always trying to tease out different things in successful people. And about a month or two ago, I spoke to the secretary of HUD, Marsha Fudge. And when she came on to speak to me, I saw that same intensity that I saw that you had when you came on here. And I noticed that a lot of successful people are just really, really intense. Speak to that a little bit. Well, you know, I I mean, for me, in terms of connecting with people and people that, you know, serve as a mentor, it's 
like I said, it's a relationship. It's who you vibe with. They're going to have different strengths and skills than I have, which is fine. But, you know, I'm looking for that, that energy from that person, that drive. You know, those are the things that stand out. And, when you know, people are looking for certain people to sponsor certain people. You know, I'm, I'm looking at what that person does and how they conduct themselves and that kind of energy, I think, is for me, is important. Um, not somebody just waiting, you know, sitting around waiting to, to be given something. You know, I want to see who's out there hustling. Um, I think that's very important. So you're out there hustling, you're doing extra the extra work that's not part of your job. Those are the kinds of things I think are very important. Um, so, yeah, it's, I mean, it's a level of intensity. But, once, you know, for me, I still all couched into, you know, do you love what you do? And there are lots of things that I do that people have no clue that I do that to me is just part of what I do. We, we just had a student whose family was burned out. There was a big apartment fire here. Uh, and I have an intern who um, she texted me yesterday saying, hey, you hear about that? I was like, oh, yeah. So I was glad that she did that, which is why, you know, this is a young lady who is my intern. I didn't have an internship. And she last year said, hey, I need an internship and I need to work for you. And I was like, the audacity of this girl to tell me she's going to work for me. And I was like, OK. And so I created an internship for her. And she's been like on the ground, ear to the ground with the students. Hey, this is going on, blah, blah, blah. You know what I'm saying? I mean, we're in the break now. I mean, finals are over. And she texted me, asked me about something that I did already knew, knew about. And I told her, I was like, oh, yeah, I already talked to the student. I sent her some money, blah, blah, blah. But that's what I'm looking for. Somebody like that who, you know, from the beginning is like, I need an internship and I need to be with you. And then even during the break, she's texting me saying, hey, I want to just make sure you knew about this. That's what I'm looking for. That's exactly what I'm looking for. So, like I said, we connected in such a way that, you know, she made it made sense to to be connected with me. We posted a TikTok of Alpha's Crossing at Clark a few days ago, and it has about 500,000 views and upwards of 700 comments. And the comments are on both sides of the ledger. You have some people saying, you know, black Greeks are dumb. Black Greeks are stupid. Why would you join one? How could you let someone tell you what to do? Then you have other people defending it, talking about the compliments of members and and so on and so forth. You've done extensive work on fraternities and sororities, even writing a book about them. What can you share about your work on frats and sororities that can provide insights to people about the power of them? Well, I mean, I, I think there is, you know, there is value. And I think for me, as someone who sees that value, I'm, I'm also a harsh critic because I do expert witness work in hazing cases. So if it's not done right, I'm not afraid to say Mm-mm, this isn't what these groups are about. So I think there's a value. I think what's happened over time is that, you know, there was a time when, you know, the group is really recruited and group people don't like that word now, but they did. They recruited people because I tell people it's not like the chess club. It's not like the science fiction club. There's a lot of liability joining these groups. So you just can't come in and just play around. And it's not like that. So it's, you know, people have to understand that. And what's happened over time is that you have people who've joined that. This is the biggest accomplishment they've ever had in their life. And so now you're giving power to somebody that has never been in leadership before. And that's why you have all these bad things that happen. It's just, it's got to be somebody that's coming in with a different kind of mindset. And then the groups have to figure out, like, how then do we add value to our communities versus adding value to ourselves? And I think that's been the problem that people have focused more on. I'm in this group now. I need people to sort of respect me and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, you know I'm going to create even stuff where you got people strolling. It's like, 
don't tell me that community service is private. Y'all could do some TikTok videos of, you, you know, doing some service or something like that. I, there's nothing wrong with that. And people always say, well, that's something that you just sort of do in private. No, uh -uh, the junior league does a report every year of the service that they do. And we don't do annual reports about the service we do and how much money we raise. So, you know, what are you talking about? So those are the kind of things. So it is. I think I think there always should be that balance of, you know, praise and criticism. And if, if we would lean into the criticism a little bit more, the organizations would be better because I think. Some of the criticism, I mean, just for any group that's, you know, semi-exclusive, you're going to have some criticism. And I think that's OK. But I think some of the criticism is legitimate and we need to lean into it and say, you know, what are we really about? What, what are our goals? And then how do we live toward that? Because if you're doing more of that, you get less of the criticism. That's I mean, that's the way I look at it. But, you know, like I said, I, my perspective is unique because, I mean, I, I do work for the different groups to try to do the anti-hazing and all those kinds of things. But when bad things happen, I hear from attorneys all the time uh, to be an expert witness. How do you balance that from your experience being late 70s, early 80s? I can kind of guess, you know, it was a little bit different then. How do you well, balance that? Yeah, it, no, it was different. I mean, you know, I. I joined when I, I pledged in 1986 and we were the last group to pledge before Alpha Phi Alpha went into a risk management program. Basically, you had to be certified to participate in pledge activities from for a liability reason. So there were classes you had to take and pass a test. So I'm the last of the wild, wild west where basically anything goes and things that started to change early 80s. It wasn't like the stories I heard from people in the 70s. The 70s was really crazy. So it started to moderate some by the time I came in in the 80s. But I think for me, coming in in 1986 and then sitting on our national board from 88 to 89 and you're in those meetings and you're hearing about the stuff that's going on. I was like, oh, this got to change. So it was for me. It was like when you hear I mean, you saw the things on our campus. And I don't think our campus was too crazy. We had crazy stuff that happened like a lot of places. But then when I'm hearing these stories from all across the country, I was like. Oh, this is this is bad. I think that's part of the reason I got interested in the research of it, too, just to try to understand why do we do what we do? Because people didn't understand that. What are the consequences? So I, that led to the work that I ended up doing, which I think is good. I'm happy that happened. But that was eye opening for me. So I leaned into the issues once I heard them and had that knowledge to say, yeah, we got to do some things differently. Right. We could talk about this forever because I have some strong feelings about it as well. But. <laughs> Uh, during your time at Dillard, you secured a $160 million loan from the federal government. Dillard's endowment grew by more than 115% to over $100 million, making it one of the top endowments of any HBCU. Alumni giving grew from 4% to 23%. Film studies and physics programs were implemented during your tenure. And Dillard is the third highest producer of African-American undergraduate physics degrees in the United States and retention and graduation rates have grown under your leadership. What do you attribute this to and what leadership strategies and tactics can you share to help other leaders? Uh, it's, it's real simple. You just get a really good team of people. Um, I, I place a, a high premium on recruiting the best people possible. And when you get a good team that's creative, they don't always agree, uh, but they're creative people and they're driven magic things happen. So I, for me, it's like, that's, that's a big part of the job that you got to create the space for that creativity. It get everybody to push each other and then work together. Um, that's how those things get done. I think presidents take too much. They get too much 
praise for stuff that happens that's good and too much criticism when it goes wrong. So I'm not going to take the praise for all that stuff because there's a whole lot of people that made that happen. I'm All I can claim is I, I hired all of them. So that's that's I can say I did that. That's what I did. But the other stuff, they did a lot of that. So I, I'm not the only one that takes credit. I, I play my role and they take, you know, vice presidents take leadership. So when we're doing we're working with alumni giving, raising that the vice president for institutional advancement sets the lead and I have to play my role. So he's the coach then and I'm the player. I got to play my role. So everybody has a role to play. Um, so, you know, I'm not necessarily at top of the food chain for some of those activities. I have to play a different kind of role. So I understand that. Looking back, what common traits did the people that you hired that became star players on your team, what did they have in them that you may have seen at the time or you may have saw as you worked together? Yeah, it's, I mean, a lot of it is they take initiative, um, I think they are good team players and you do the references and how they work with other people. That's something we, we always look for. Um, they're knowledgeable, active in their professional associations. I like that a lot. The people who, you know, you got somebody who's over business and finance and they have worked for the accrediting association going out and reviewing other schools for their finances. Yep. That's what you want. You know what I'm saying? You want people who are well connected in their industry. So they know their industry and they're content experts. So those are the kinds of things I look for. What type of tolerance do you have for people that are really good, but don't play well with the other team members? No, I don't. Yeah, it's every now and then I've had one like that. Now, this frustrating. It is. It's sort of like, ah, you know, but if they're doing a good job, I mean, I've had people like that who do a good job, but um, they're not a good team player. So that's not that's not fun. So this is your last year at Dillard. You wrote a a drop off. I got a call. Okay. Thank you. All right. Really appreciate it. Okay. No problem. Appreciate it. Thanks. All the best. Uh-huh, bye-bye. Bye-bye.